Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. A roast as dark as the night, perfect for fueling the cryptid research and mad ravings required for your podcasting. Don't mind the red eyes, he's just trying to warn you of the bridge. The bridge. Finally, from the caffeine-addled brains of spring Jack Coffee and last podcast on the left, we bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. <laughs> Time to leave Boneville. All right, we gotta go on a great adventure, wouldn't you know? I'm your Bruiser Phone Bone, and welcome to Wizard and the Bruiser. And I am the Lord of Locusts, a Ugh. creature born from darkness. I yearn to touch the face of this earth, but I will burn it all down, for I alone must be, and life separate from me is a pestilence. Wait a tick, Bucko. Aren't you in the wrong comic book? Wait, no. What? Why are you here, you Mickey Mouse-looking motherfucker? This is a story of uh, ancient evil and a battle for the soul of humanity. Well, I'm just here to be a part of the cow race and, uh, you know, getting to hijink them ups Wait, where'd you get that banjo? Why do you have a banjo now? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our episode on Bone. This was a for me episode. I just always wanted to cover this. I think, you know, as we get deeper and deeper into different topics in comic books, we've covered a lot of superheroes and stuff like that. We've done some indie work stuff, but uh, Bone is definitely one of the many indie comics that uh, became not so indie first of all like uh, let's let's not let's not kid anyone it, it's, well it's it's this amazing thing yeah and at first I was like I don't know it's kind of niche but the fact is is that bone has carried over for so many generations of nerds at this point uh there's the initial like fans that came in uh on the indie comics rack when he was like one of these self-published superstars. Then there's the kids that discovered it in Disney Adventures. Then there was like the older uh, like comic book fans that or not even comic book fans, but like as part of the graphic novel boom. Yeah. The complete bone in the 2000s. That's me. Was, yeah, that's it when I was came a mainstay yeah. on everybody's shelf because it was one of the most uh, de- not dense, but prolific and substantive pieces of single single author comic uh, art ever. Then in the later 2000s, 
Scholastic comes in, releases the color editions, and a whole new generation of kids grow up. So now we're going from like Gen Xers to Millennials and Gen Zers, all connected with this work by this single author. And uh, once the Netflix show actually gets off the ground, who knows how many more newcomers will be brought into this world that is uh, this almost... I almost want to say like a a final form for different traditions of comic storytelling told immaculately by a guy who like understood his craft, cared deeply about the art form he was working in and did it in against the grain the whole way. It's a fascinating story. It's an amazing piece of work. I, I I was just like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll do Bone, whatever. This one's for Holden. And now I'm <laughs> so glad you pushed for this topic. Yeah, I just really loved it. You know, I read it. And, and yes, exactly, uh, Jake. I, I was definitely one of the ones who... It's hard to think of a time before there was a graphic novel section in a Barnes & Noble or something like that. But it really was not the way comics were distributed for a long time. And then when I rediscovered comic books in uh, college, you know, people turned me on to The Watchmen and Dark Knight uh, and all that good stuff, Sandman and everything. And then I started visiting that section of the bookstore or of the comic book store and perusing and Bone always stood out as something that looked interesting and something I wanted to check out. And also just like, Something that seemed like a, just a good value purchase because that it's that huge thick boy, yeah, and it's all in that one big volume. I mean, I love that kind of thing where it's just like it's all here. It's not a big investment. It's just this one book, and you can sit and read through all of it. And um, I eventually would. I actually ended up borrowing it from a friend. Uh, I'm going. I'm now going to purchase it. My own copy of it. Uh, now that uh, now that we're covering this, and you know, I, I'm in a, I'm not a broke adult like I was in my 20s, and and it came at a time when I had this weird. I, I mentioned every now and again. Stop me if you've heard this one before. I had this weird unemployment year. I had this weird year where I um, it was when the recession happened. I was working at Getty Images. I was not a good employee. I've never <laughs> been a good employee. And, um, you know, it was just very hard to find work in New York. And I also was like, I I also think I just wanted a break from working a nine to five. Yeah. Who doesn't? And just sort of. I mean, it's 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 hard to find like a decent white collar job that won't interfere with your uh, creative career. Right. You can you could have gotten five dollars an hour working the. uh shitty spaghetti at the hot food bar at a deli. Well, it's like really unfortunate. I kind of hate my own brain for this. And I bet a lot of people are like this. I'm actually more productive when I have a shitty nine to five Mm. than when I have all the time in the world and no job. No, that's an absurd phenomenon. I I just, something happens. Something happens to my brain every day. I would wake up and go tomorrow. I'll start the screenplay. You know what I mean? Tomorrow I'll get this and that going. And instead, I just remember I was in my apartment in Brooklyn. I borrowed Bone from uh, my friends uh, out in Ridgewood. And I would just sit by my window in my apartment, chain smoking cigarettes, like reading this giant book for a couple of weeks. I don't know how long it took me to get through it, but all I did for, I it probably was only like a week because all I did was read it all day because I had nothing else to do. And I definitely wasn't going to, you know, 
actually try to like better my, you know, I talk about a year. I wish I could go back and do again, but also talk about a year where I was like, in hindsight, I was like, Oh, I was like depressed. Mm -hmm. It's funny how depression works too, where, yeah, you know, you only, you don't realize it till like after. And you're like, Oh wait, I was like, I thought I was fine because I'd wake up every day and be like, I don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. This is so great. You know what I mean? And then I'd go get like a bad sandwich from the bodega across the street. And then that would make me poop a lot. And then, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Like, sounds like you got a busy day, Holden. You got your sandwich. <laughs> you got your pooping. Sandwich, you got your comic my wor- books. World of Goo. I think I was playing oh a lot God. at that time. And boom blocks on the Wii. <laughs> and just and also like we didn't have good air conditioning so i'm literally just sitting in my apartment in the middle of the summer just sweating bullets <laughs> i mean just so unhealthy no initiative just a weird unemployment year and so i'll always associate bone with that uh for my own sense but talk about a book that hey if you want to escape mm. your weird unemployment year holy shit that book worked so well i would just get lost in this amazing fantasy world and also this amazing like you know it's it's hard to describe it but i will get there with all of his influences but also this this cartoony world that i grew up on and loved you know that was so reminiscent of all those like you know newspaper strips i loved walt disney comic books you know all that kind of stuff, Scrooge McDuck, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it melded together in such an amazing way, mixed with my later love of fantasy works like Lord of the Rings, which I read then, which I read in college. And then it all came together in this beautiful melding of of influences and of art direction and everything. And this thing, it was just like, God, this is just hitting me in every different great angle in terms of what a comic book can be. And it I just really, loved it. It really, the magic trick of this book that I, you know, took for granted, it always seemed weird. It was always weird that this uh, that bone takes place in a fictional land called the Valley where there's ancient spirits and dragons and mythical creatures and warring kingdoms and all of this high fantasy seriousness going on. But the main character and uh, his cousins, of course, are these nonsensical uh, kind of uh, pear-shaped, big-nosed cartoon characters, mm-hmm. and they uh, constantly refer to like modern-day uh, conveniences. They talk about credit cards and taxes and refrigerators and, Mo- and Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're from <laughs> our world, and yet yeah. they're like they just wandered into this fantasy world. And it the the uh, brilliance of that was that you, if it was just a fantasy comic. You know, as I feel like almost every comic book nerd in the world has walked past a shelf full of uh, issues of Elf Quest, mm-hmm. which is like the most like bog standard. I don't actually, I don't know. It's been running forever. Please do not come at me, Elf Quest fans. But it has this like down the middle, uh, self published fantasy artwork, and you, j- it just has no appeal because you don't. You know, it just seems kind of like eh. I, I don't need it. I, you know, I can play Dungeons and Dragons on my own. No, thank you. And you also pass the kids section, which is like a goofy rabbit or Mickey Mouse reprints or Donald Duck or whatever. And that also doesn't have appeal. But by combining the two, by having these like, I mean, literally phone bone, 
his uh, uh, angry, uh, you know, conniving cousin, Phony Bone and Smiley Bone, they have the exact dynamic of Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck and Goofy. Uh Like it is these just archetypes that are so familiar and lovable. Their character designs are at once expressive, but simple enough that like you immediately put yourself in their shoes. The fact that they are so cartoony in a much more realistically rendered world This is an observed phenomenon within comic books. You want your main character to be almost a blank slate so that as you read and perceive that world through their eyes, there's less psychological barriers. The more your main character is like, I am a 38-year-old Latino woman. And I have uh, various political – you're just like – it's it's a barrier. Unless, of course, you are a 38-year-old Latino woman with political beliefs. (laughs) And so all of these are tricks of the trade. All of these are ideas that are being bounced around in the comics world. You know, you're talking about people like Alan Moore and Scott McCloud and Bill Watterson. Like, uh, you know, the Comics Journal is getting published. Wizard Magazine's being published. People are talking about the art form of comics. And this, this one singular creator just, like, strikes out on his own and makes something that is, you know, even on the indie comic shelf, like every, even the Ninja Turtles originally were these hyper-violent, hyper-sexual, hyper-gritty works that like uh, kind of blurred into each other. You know, you can only have so many like, yeah, I wear tights, but I watched my wife die and I crack people in the neck. I snap necks all day. Like there's only so much edge you can do and god knows there was so much of that uh at the time that bone first started to release just uh, it was the time of rob liefeld it was yeah. the time of image comics and even uh smith jeff smith's own, own bone title will get uh released via image even but it was and and variant covers and mm-hmm. holograms and you know all that kind of the whole the whole rush to uh, get the next biggest collector's item was right around that time, and for some reason also everything had to be like gritty and fangs sh- sh- out and you know big muscles and you know boobs the size of um, giant moons, Jake, and you couldn't even you know you couldn't even think straight. You're just staring at them. I mean, you listen, I mean? we've all seen. I'm talking to. <laughs> Let he who has not gawked at a drawing of a tiny uh, woman with spherical giant boobs in a comic book. <laughs> cast big, a, the, big as Jupiter, Jake. But that being said, it's not to say that Bone was all like sunshine gumdrops. There is uh-huh. intense and sudden violent acts in this yes. book. There is like a little bit of like, uh, you know, titillation, feminine wiles. The character of Thorn. Her first appearance, she like drops her pants, and like yeah. we as the reader are supposed to be like, Woo. well, and I also loved how like the big mo- a big moment for you in reading it was like the moment when Phone Bone like gets hurt and he and he sits up and like turns his head and there's blood coming down and it's like whoa okay this is off from yeah cartoony rules this, Bugs Bunny oh, this doesn't character bleed. <laughs> yeah this character can bleed though too this character can get hurt in a real and frightening way and then also it it finds it and I have some really good quotes on how he how he works between the realms of humor and violence and sentiment but it finds its moments of sentiment as well and um in really like tasteful ways you know so yeah the whole thing does great and the whole thing is interestingly enough very much so Ne- was never intended to be this this uh, work for for kids, and then of course, as you said, it becomes it gets this like third life as this huge scholastic release where they colorized it, 
And so there's just all these generations now at this point who have loved... I didn't even know about the Scholastic yeah. thing, to be honest with you. And I know, too, I would have been obsessed mm-hmm. with that if if that was during my Scholastic years. Because as we all know, the Scholastic... If you don't know, maybe if you're outside of the U.S., um, the Scholastic Book Fair, it would come through your school every year... It was so exciting. You would get this like brochure of everything they offered. And then you could go into, you know, they usually put it up in the library or they'd put it up in some space that the extra space they had at the school. And you'd go in and get, for us, it was Goosebumps books and Mad Libs. And, um, you know, you get posters and stuff like that. And it was always like such a thrill. And it did actually make books exciting for kids in a cool way. Like as much as it was just brilliant on Scholastic's part to get as much money out of the p- parents as possible. I mean, they offered the schools their revel. The revel. We covered this in the Goosebumps episode, yes. which I really enjoyed. You oh, yeah, guys, yeah. check it listen, out. Listen, we're all, we're not Spotify out. exclusive anymore. Get those archives. Yeah, they offered the schools a kickback for the sales at the book fair, and it revolutionized. You know, it turned. Uh, just another children's book publisher into a juggernaut. Yeah. You know, it's no Harry Potter, no Goosebumps, no... And speaking bump. of jugs, big as the moon, Jake. We're talking 90s. We're talking motorcycles, flaming skeletons. You ninjas know I mean? everywhere. Just yep. every comic book, just <laughs> chock crammed with ninjas and titties. <laughs> Uh, the God, do you think we alienate female <laughs> listeners, Holden? I please don't. I love you. Guys. I have a daughter. She's beautiful, she's little tiny feet, and I love her. And she's so, she's so smart. I'm smart. I'm not like they say. Not like dumb. Now I'm just doing Godfather. All right, let's get into it. Uh, let me do the synopsis. A whole 16 minutes into the episode, but we'll introduce our our author and everything. Bone is an indie graphic novel series written and illustrated by Jeff Smith, which melds classic comic strip stylings with the dark fantasy genre. Three characters, Phone Bone and his two cousins, Fonsible P. Phony Bone and Smiley Bone, end up leaving their town of Boneville and end up on a hero's journey to save the valley from the Lord of Locusts. So let's get into this man, Jeff Smith, because so much of this revolves around him and his wife, actually, uh, who ends up becoming his business partner, ends up being such a huge part of the distribution of Bone Comics. Uh, This guy, I'm so glad you had a big revelation about the comic itself, Jake, and my Mm. revelation... I just love this guy's journey. It's so great, you know, and I, I, again, stop me if you've heard this one, I always talk about how in my own career, like, I think if you have a dream and a goal starting out in, in the industry, whatever industry it is that you wish to become a part of, I always try to get it across, like, be willing to pivot. Jeff Smith wanted to be a newspaper comic strip guy. He wanted to be a four panel dude. Uh, and and turn and and it's also funny how like different people in the same industry turn their nose up at other people. Like mm-hmm. he looked at comic books as lesser than the new the funny pages, which is all you know. And I think a lot of funny pages, like newspaper strip writers, felt that way mm-hmm. and eventually realized like, oh, this is actually my shit. This this comic book thing is actually where it's at and how I can do what I actually didn't even realize is what I truly wanted to do. I'm jumping ahead, but... One of the things that really got me this week is how Jeff Smith's trajectory and childhood and obsessions very much mirrored my own. I was cartoon obsessive. I was the artist kid uh, for a lot of my schooling. 
uh, I was, you know, I just assumed that cartoon, like the first kind of time you see drawing funny pictures as a job is when you pick up the newspaper and you're like, oh, this is a career. This is someone's life. You can build a uh, existence out of drawing in a way that like even something like a fine artist or even a comic book artist or especially something like an animator or a television writer just feels like too far off. But like you can put a pen to paper and if you could do that for the rest of your life, you want that. That is your that is that first far off creative mountain goal for a cartoon obsessed totally. kid. So Jeff Smith grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and early on he had a great interest in comic books, as you said, comic strips, animated TV shows, especially strips. The one that largely caught his eye was Charles Schultz's Peanuts, which his father would actually read to him every Sunday, and it gave him an inspiration to learn to read at a very early age. Another big inspiration we've talked about before, Carl Barks, who created Scrooge McDuck. Uh, check out our DuckTales uh, episode I believe we go in on him there. He was a master of panel movement and character expression. Smith said, I always wanted Uncle Scrooge to go on a longer adventure. I thought, man, if you could just get a comic book of that quality, the length of, say, War and Peace or The Odyssey or something, that would be something I would love to read. And even as a kid, I looked everywhere for that book, that Uncle Scrooge story that was 1,100 pages long. You kind of get it with the life and times of Scrooge McDuck, which is, uh, again, I cannot recommend enough. Marcus Parks, uh, our network's own, Marcus Parks was the one who turned me on to that. Definitely check that out. Uh, That is is, so good. It's so key to the formula of what made Bone good is that the whole time, like in the context of Bone, you are reading what is just one wacky misadventure of the Bone Cousins in a series of misadventures that just got way, 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 way out of hand. And and also way, way, way developed. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I always felt, though, in safe hands with when it came to that, knowing that this whole thing was the one thing. It doesn't, like, fall off or there was no attempt to just keep it going ad nauseum, that there was a beginning, a middle, and end. There's very much so a big climactic sort of middle point Mm -hmm. in the whole story that it builds towards and then, you know, builds up again to the big finale. And uh, I I love that about this. Yeah, definitely. That is, is, we're we're honing on definitely on what it makes it so special. If you read the first issue and you read the last issue, you know, it basically uh, starts with them on a cart being like, oh boy, you like, how do we get into this mess? Yeah. And then 1,300 pages later, they're back on the cart being like, well, that sure was something. <laughs> Guess we're going yep. back home to Boneville. <laughs> like, Spoiler it, alert, but yeah, yeah, totally. You cut through all of the in the actual story and that framing of a Uncle Scrooge style, like mm-hmm. this week, the Duck the Duckburg crew yeah. is going just, to Bora Bora. Instead of five pages, it's a thousand. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the real life changer moment, though, that brought Jeff Smith fully to pursue a comics career seems to be when he saw the animation special, the Pogo special birthday special on TV. This was produced and directed by animator Chuck Jones. The daily comic strip Pogo was created by cartoonist Walt Kelly. We've talked about Pogo before. Walt Kelly would also later go on to work on Disney stuff like Pinocchio and Dumbo. Walt Kelly is prolific, amazing, you know, highly influential cartoonist. Um, and Pogo is no stranger uh, to this podcast. Uh, the strip is set 
uh, in the Okefenokee Swamp in the American Southeast and centers around a possum named Pogo. It was known for having both this child and adult audience draw because it had it was silly, wacky cartoon stuff, but then also delved into all of this social and political satire, uh, which was weaved into its silly stories of swamp animals. Now, the social political satire part is not really uh, what Jeff is going to end up pursuing at all, but the part where it's these you know humanoid these, these like silly, wacky humanoid animals, especially though um, the the way that the characters spoke, they had this swamp speak and. It it featured fractured grammar, purposeful misspellings like incredible and hysterical, as well as invented words uh, entirely. And and definitely the bones have this kind of old timey talk mm-hmm. about them that I think it was definitely drawn from the works of Pogo. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I mean, it's if you look at some old Pogo strips, the influences are super apparent. The character design of Pogo with the big nose and rounded head and uh, body proportions is almost one to one with uh, the original Bone character. Uh, Albert the Alligator is this uh, longer character whose entire mannerisms, even down to his cigar and body shape and facial expressions, is almost one-to-one with Smiley Bone, the lush kind of realistic verdant backgrounds with these more uh, rounder, heavier brushstroke characters. It's very clear that this was an early influence on Jeff Smith. Uh, Supposedly, it was a girl in his class brought a compendium after he had talked about how much he loved the uh, animated special that you saw. Although even at this time, Bone was already part of his repertoire. He had been drawing this character since he was six years old. There's a, uh, he, I've seen two different stories given. Uh, one is that the original character was kind of this C-shaped uh, guy with like the nose on top and the jaw at the bottom, always screaming, and his head resembled a telephone receiver. And so that's why he was Phone Bone. Uh, mm-hmm. Another one is uh, just that the name Phonebone is used extensively in the works of mad cartoonist uh, Don Martin, yes. who uses it as a placeholder silly last name for all sorts of things, companies, characters, random signs. Like, the guy just loves the phrase Phonebone. Weirdly enough, mm-hmm. the character Phonybone was technically created by a third-grade classmate of Jeff's called Mike Brooks, who also loved comic books and was friends with him. And because Jeff was so compulsively drawing this bone character, uh, Mike created this 
Antibone, later named Phony Bone, who was, uh, you know, kind of a Scrooge McDuck, obsessed with money, quick to anger kind of character, in direct opposition to the wholesome pogo niceness of the Bone character that Jeff Smith was just drawing on all of his notebooks. Uh, Literature also had a big hand in his creative influences at an early age, namely sprawling epics like Moby Dick, which he claims to be his favorite and is even mentioned in Bone. Uh, Phone Bone's favorite book that uh, puts Thorne to sleep (laughs) immediately, uh, as he describes it. Huckleberry Finn, Lord of the Rings. Smith Smith said, the kinds of stories I'm drawn to, like Huckleberry Finn, are the ones that start off very simple, almost like children's stories but as it goes on, it gets a little darker and the themes become a little more sophisticated and more complex. And those are really the kinds of stories that just get me going. Lastly, uh, when it came to comic books, he was obsessed with Neil Adams and his Batman run. Smith said, no one really believes that he's my number one comic book influence, but he is. I think if you look at my trees or proportions or drop shadows on the people or the shadows cast by trees or inanimate objects, I see it very clearly. And Neil could make his drawings act which i love that i love that little quote there um his so his father uh very supportive early on of his dreams uh, he was a maker of ice cream products for a living he encouraged jeff very early on to draw he would show him how to draw woody woodpecker when he was just three or four years old and uh that's how he got to playing around and finding that bone character and uh yeah he was using those characters for comic strips when he was just nine years old it was after high school that Smith really flounders a bit. He tries art school. He's and it's a funny time to be going to art school for cartooning. It's uh, and by funny I mean shitty. Uh, there was no room for professional cartoonists there at the time. This was the early seventies. Smith said in art school they explained to me that cartooning was just a complete bastard child of the arts and wasn't real. That was kind of shocking to an eighteen year old. Oh my god! You mean I'm not allowed to be a cartoonist? Is that what you're trying to say to me? So immediately I began looking for ways to use this system that didn't accept me in ways I could e- I could at least use it so he quits after just a quarter of art school uh then he spends he jokingly said like the only thing he learned about was like uh like the color colorizing and stuff Mm -hmm. and and, uh, you know the rules of color which he would of course not use for many many years it was a boat was a black and white uh work for a long time and uh so he spends this time this limbo time And, and i think it's important for everyone to hear that like he he does not he does not immediately succeed he fails at art school he he just kind of ends up working um, uh, different jobs especially at his father's ice cream factory uh, doing the assembly line stuff and that definitely is what motivated him to pursue something more he just said to himself do i really want to be a factory worker for the rest of my life i've got to pursue something else." in 1981 if you got a bugs bunny ice pop with the eyeballs actually aligned right that was jeff (laughs) (laughs) nice he would uh, end up going to college at Ho- Ohio State. And it's really interesting. The biggest thing with Jeff Smith seems that that he is incredibly good at, like, finding workarounds. Mm-hmm. Like, he knew he couldn't... There was no place that he could figure to go for cartooning or to learn in the traditional sense at school. But he knew about the student newspaper, the OSU Lantern at Ohio State. And he went there... Hold on. This is actually super key... I'm sorry. Was that too mean? Did I? I felt too aggressive just then. I just. I, <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, the Ohio State Lantern, especially at the time, had a circulation of thirty-five thousand. It was literally 
in terms of readership, the biggest college paper in America. Not only that, but they had a prolific, I've been using that word a lot, uh, a prolific history of student-created cartoons. Lots of political cartoonists that uh, became popular and well-known started there. Uh, Other cartoonists got their start there. And they would actually pay for comics in the paper. $15 a single cartoon that got published, which was, you know, you got three in in a week. That's like, or, you know, you got five in, I'm sorry, you got five comics in and a regular strip. That's $75 a week, which in early 80s money is insane. You're practically a millionaire. You're driving a Ferrari. Beer got, cost got a nickel, Holden. Gas cost. on the weekends. Everything uh, <laughs> cost a nickel. A man cost $1.50, I believe, at that point, <laughs> yeah, to yeah. own a man. Uh, yeah, and also uh, around this time, he's reignited to get back into the comic strip game because Doonesbury is out and about, and he is hugely into that strip specifically. Smith said, this is where I redeveloped the bone characters I'd made up when I was a kid into a heavy metal type of universe. Cartoon characters who are trapped in a fantasy world, that's full-on humans. Uh, he also said, it's where I created the world as I went and concepts solidified. Some of the jokes worked and some of them were incredibly sophomoric. In overall structure, it's very close. It's the same idea of the bones getting run out of Boneville and all the same characters are there. But the difference is I was just going straight forward. I wrote it as I went and I did it every day for four years and I got to know the characters very well. I got to learn how to write a lot better and also this overarching story came into focus. So I had the benefit when I first started doing the comic books of going back and reading all that. I got to get rid of all the jokes that were really lame. I didn't have to do those for a wider audience. I tried those out. They bombed. They're gone. But I used all the jokes I got good feedback on. Also, since I know the end of the story now, which I didn't when I did it in college, I was able to begin right away at the beginning with the structure and add little incidents, little cues. I could foreshadow the concept that there was an ending, that it was is all one story. In fact, he even says uh, in, in a panel, I believe at one point, that he drew the final page of Bone before he started the first issue of the comic book when he went back to uh, after you know, this is going to be a little while later when he actually starts to sit, sits down and starts to write the comic book and so uh, yeah and that, yeah this uh, comic in the uh, Ohio State Lantern is called Thorn yeah uh, it's named after the Thorn character and in this version of the book she is drawn oddly enough like one of the ladies from Doonesbury like the expressions the Big ink work as the moon. You're talking about Thorne's head in this book because her head is insanely disproportional. (laughs) He shows an early, like, uh, wow, an early love and uh, a a plethora, a plethora, a plethora of uh, inking techniques. (laughs) It looks, uh, it's kind of. It's crude compared to the final work, but uh, characters like the Red Dragon, the Rat Creatures, uh, Grandma Ben, they're all there. In fact, there are entire lines and beats from the Bone graphic novel in its final form that are already drawn this early on. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, alternative cartoonist Durf Backdurf in a blog post from 2014. That's not a a name. He did the uh, graphic novel My Friend Dahmer. It's like, no, he's a legit guy. What's the name again? Uh, He was born Jack Backdurf, but he changed his name. 
to his nom de plume dirt, which is what he published <laughs> love that. comics under. And he w- also was a cartoonist at Ohio State University for The Lantern. He was more at the, uh, hey, Reagan's a big fucking piece of shit uh, style cartoonist. But uh, he actually has some behind the scenes like goss, believe it or not, about early Thorne and Jeff Smith. He basically said, uh, you know, it was a four panel comic strip, a thousand fold better than the amateurish fair that usually ran on the Lantern's comic page. Journalism majors uh, kind of jumped over the art department to get the strip in the uh, newspaper. But at the time, it was not received very well. Uh, As uh, Durf says it, uh, the reaction from students was, as I recall, mixed comics with an X, which was a whole thing back then. Loved it. The rest, and mind you, they outnumbered us a thousand to one, thought it was weird. A nerdy strip for the Dungeons and Dragons crowd. Halfway through the first year, Smith turned it into a political strip, kind of like Walt Kelly's Pogo, his greatest inspiration. And uh, this is true. Uh, Jeff Smith, the pressures of making a daily comic strip is insane. Do you know, every day that paper is blank and you have to fill it by a deadline. I did a political cartoon for my... uh, my college newspaper. And even when I only had a weekly assignment, there were some days where I was just like backed against a wall, like freaking out. Cause I just had nothing, nothing to do. And you can, a lot of these early strips are about uh, kind of devolve and are about Jeff himself. Mm. He starts inserting himself into the bone story oh, when he runs out bonded. of ideas. Um, yeah. Also sometimes it's, he'll it's... just talk about drinking and hanging out. And this is, this is the juiciest piece of gossip. Uh, one political arc that he did, which was a storyline about racism, got him in trouble as a firebrand African studies professor got so worked up over it that he and a small band of students actually stormed the newsroom of the Lantern in protest. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like it kind of got off the rails, but it's still. And it's funny. It's funny how much he fought uh, like just writing a comic book like. A lot of the issues his readers had was like he would end on a, on a lot of cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. He was clearly like had a more you know had more panels to do to draw at a time, but he was just so stuck on needing to make it this comic strip style four panel fair. Uh, so yeah, it, it was always gonna gonna be a comic book whether he liked it or not. Is kind of how I feel about it. Even from the very beginning, it was he was just forcing it into this like smaller box than it. Than so it, uh, Holden, wait a minute. If be. he's writing these comics in the early '80s for his college paper, and it's pretty much almost uh, you know I'd say sixty percent of what the finished product will be. Why does he not publish his first issue until 1991? Well, wouldn't you know it, Jake? If you're going to have a dream in this kind of business, uh, we've covered it a billion times before. No matter what, inevitably, you'll have to suffer some odd years in advertising. And so before we get to him realizing that truly what he wants to do is draw this and write this bone comic book, he takes a big old foray into animation, into um, doing ad work. uh, And this happens after school. After school, he co-founds his own animation studio, and it is called Character Builders. Uh, it is uh, catered on uh, for, to Hollywood projects. One of his first, I think maybe the first big gig they got was Rodney Dangerfield's cartoon movie, Rover Dangerfield. Uh, they also got a lot of corporate advertising gigs, which Jeff did not enjoy much at all. For a time, he had to cut his hair, remove the piercings, put on a suit, and deal with all these corporate types. He talked about how 
he, you know, he would have to deal with these like misogynist assholes. He had these like rules that he would, you know, he would have to try to cater to them. And at the same time, there were lines he couldn't cross that he would have to deal with all these like corporate types and how terrified he was to see all these people trying to get up these uh, executives' butts, like the underlings and stuff, all fighting for the good graces of, I mean, just, just, (laughs) hey, I've been there. Just a whole, just a complete and utter just alienation uh, from the corporate world as he's trying to sell these these uh, d- jobs and get work for him and his his crew over at Character Builders. A uh, little piece of uh, more movies that they worked on. It uh, it was actually common practice at the time for uh, smaller animation studios to outsource individual scenes and shots to independent uh, animation houses like Character Builders, people that got work from gigs and commercial work and stuff like that. Uh, Fern Gully... There was a scene in Ferngully that Jeff Smith worked on, and uh, they did a f- couple of scenes on Bebe's kids. Awesome. I love Bebe's kids. They don't well, die. We'll they multiply. They multiply. I love Bebe's kids. I love that movie. Right uh, after yeah. Bebe's kids, he sold his share of the company. <laughs> yeah. So uh, around this time, he then realizes, oh, I've been missing out on a lot of comic book greatness over this past decade he always had a bit as i said of an upturned nose at comic books feeling that newspaper strips were you know really the way to go where the true art was and um his mother actually is working on a ad gig and he's he's creating this like fake over the top superhero character for this uh, ad situation that he's there got. uh it's time warner cable man you can yeah, find time warner cable man you can find clips of it online it's very weird that this is what broke while him. his mother is in new england she spots this in the window of this comic book shop she spots a copy of the tick and she picks it up for him and sends it to him and uh he super falls in love with it is like this is amazing this is so funny and original and interesting and then came a copy of the comics journal that featured an interview with indie comics author and cartoonist Linda Berry, among other things, Smith said, I read that whole issue of the comics journal cover to cover, and I thought, holy cow, this is a whole other way of thinking about comics. It's the way I think about comics. Still, it took me a while to turn the corner from thinking the comic books were second-class citizens, so to speak, to actually opening up some and finding out what they're capable of. When I sat down to do the first issue of Bone, I don't think I was prepared for the explosion of space I was about to get. After years of trying to force jokes in a form miniature panels. It was clear that as a canvas, comic books are far superior. As a writer, I find it so much easier to let conversations between characters flow naturally. And if someone says something funny during the course of it, so much the better, as opposed to the set-em-up ribbon-shot approach demanded by the newspaper strips of today. The final two nails in the coffin in terms of inspiration for old Jeff Smith came from two books, Cerberus and Frank Miller's Dark Knight, uh, or Cerebus, I'm sorry, Cerebus and Frank Miller's Dark Knight. Cerebus showed him that he could do exactly what he was already trying to do. It's kind of weird how uh, close... Whoa, whoa, what is it about Cerebus, Cerebus, (laughs) a cartoon, a comic strip in which a comically out-of-place cartoon character uh, navigates an in-depth and well-realized dark fantasy world? It's kind of funny, like, 
he struggled for so long to try to get Bone into newspaper strips and was told over and over again by the powers that be, the the gatekeepers of that, that he couldn't have a cartoony character in a dark fantasy world and have it sell. And so it was literally Cerebus. He like sees it and he's like, it's selling. My idea can sell. This is not out of out of reach. In the documentary, Dear Mr. Watterson, which uh, I think we mentioned in our Calvin and Hobbes episode. I love that. Uh, yeah, Jeff yeah. Smith was one of the talking heads that, you know, hyped up uh, Bill Watterson and his influence. And uh, he talks about how, yeah, out of after college, he still, even while working at the animation studio, he kept trying to get Thorne into comic syndicates public because uh you know that's the only way you get into newspapers is they work with these syndicates and time and time again they would reject it time and time again they would give him terrible notes i believe one early um note that he got for what do we mean i believe he's telling it in this in this documentary (laughs) a little mouse whispered (laughs) in my ear that there's a allegedly (laughs) Uh, the representative of the syndicate, the agent, uh, his notes for Bone was get rid of all of the human characters and uh, make it so that the Bones uh, talk through thought balloons. Yeah. And when Jeff Smith pushed back on that, uh, the agent was like, well, Garfield talks in thought balloons. Yeah, <laughs> like, that yeah. was it. He was like, You're- he was just like, why? And they were like, well, because Garfield does it. And he's just like. You're you the one. You're the, the gatekeeper. You're you about. are the. You hold the fate of this art form that I can't. That I've given my life to in your hands, and you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. One of the things about Jeff Smith is that he is a prolific self promoter. You have to be when you're an independent artist like this. So he has given, at this point, hundreds of interviews and panels and like uh, sound bites. Like you know, if he contradicts something or uh, omits another thing, like, you know, it's it's all true. It's all part of the story. Uh, he says that he attended the 1989 Festival of Cartoon Art at Ohio State University. He had already been working with character creators for uh, years at this point. And uh, Bill Watterson gave a speech that was, uh, it's kind of legendary. It's known as the cheapening of the comic. And it was about uh, how he mourned for uh, earlier comic strips and comic sections in newspapers where individual strips like Crazy Cat and Will Eisner's The Spirit got entire pages to express themselves and how modern syndicates kept shrinking and shrinking and standardizing the format so that they can like cut a panel if there's not enough space. They can rearrange things vertically if they want to and how the art of comics were being kind of neutered by these commercial interests. And Bill Watterson concludes the speech by saying, you know what, if I had any sense, I would just uh, never even go into comic strips and just go self-published. And Jeff Smith, uh, upon hearing that, had an existential crisis, as he describes. Uh, He was chain smoking under a tree. And it was at that point that he decided he was going to refocus, quit trying to get syndicated, get out of the animation studio, and honest to God, create the comic he wanted to create on his own. Uh, Within two years of that revelation, Bone issue number one was published. And I have a quote to back that up. Jeff Smith said, It was about in 89. I was 29 years old, and I was going to turn 30. I thought, I never did get to do this Bone stuff. I really want to do it. And I do see there is somewhere I could take a shot at it. 
So in about 89, I began going to the library and looking up anything I could find on comics, self-publishing, running a small business. And there was just so much more information in libraries on how to do something like this than people realize. It's amazing. Obviously, pre-internet, still tons of resources out there. Uh, Unfortunately, right when he's deciding to do this, there is this comics crash uh, uh, right when he released The First Bone, especially when it came to black and white self-published works. But he told himself to stick with it for at least six issues no matter what. And fortunately, the turnaround happened around issue number seven or eight, which is about two years after he started putting it out. This really came, though, from him realizing Again, how the business worked. And I think that this is such an important cornerstone of this episode um, in terms of people listening to this, trying to figure out how to make their own dreams come true. It's not just about nailing the creative end. I mean, he could have he could have just focused on Bone creatively and made it amazing and it never would have sold. But what he did was he took a look at the business and he realized it wasn't about making something that customers wanted to buy. Not totally, at least. The main thing he needed to do, especially early on, was catch the retailer's eye. And so he does his research and finds out that the biggest distributors, Diamond and Capital, put on a retailer publisher seminar expo where he could buy a booth, which he did. And what and spent like essentially the last of his money that he had for this project. He, he spent all of it on this booth and enough copies of the first three issues of Bone to hand to every single retailer there, using up all he had left. This is this huge, risky gamble, and it totally pays off. It's very easy to get uh, several copies of the first three issues because the first <laughs> issue sold only 2,000 copies, mm. which uh, at two ninety five a pop, which is the price listed on the cover would mean about $6,000 or about $12,000 now. Absolutely lost money on the publishing costs alone. Just even printing the damn thing, let alone the time sink, the distribution costs, the shipping, just completely took a took a bath on that. So from there, he meets Dave Sim, who who uh, ran Bone as a backup feature in Cerebus, and it gets written up in various magazines and uh, bought up by several retailers for sale at their shops. And this is the big turning point. Uh, also, though, at this point. The reason why earlier, I don't know if you noticed, I said um, people finally took notice around issue number seven or eight, about two years after he'd started putting it out. That's not a lot of issues for that amount of time. And the reason for this is Jeff Smith is handling all of the modes of production at this point. Uh, we're talking all the business side, all all the, you know, the, the printing, the handling orders, the bookkeeping, all that stuff, and so that's why it takes two is- two he years is to get eight issues out. Literally typing day. out the letters column, yeah. by hand, cutting it and arranging it into rows, and doing the and like doing all the layout by hand and photographing it so that he can print it. Like everything is up to him. Even retailers that only buy like three copies, he has to get up off his ass, bag them up, get them in a box, and get them sent individually. Listening to your favorite podcast. That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University, that's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. 
The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So to remedy this, he eventually asks his wife to quit her fancy pants Silicon Valley startup job and handle the business end of Cartoon Books, uh, the company he started in 1991 in order to put out Bone. And so she has acted as president ever since, allowing him to focus on the creative end solely, which again, if yeah, is such a huge... Huge, important part of uh, being able to get this work out the door. Eventually, Image Comics becomes the book's publisher starting in 1995. Uh, that is uh, what gave the book a whole new resurgence in popularity. Um, uh, and then again, it gets a huge surge in popularity when it's republished in Disney Adventures magazine in the late 90s. But of course, what brings its biggest boon in popularity yet was in 2005 as Smith had just finished the full story when Scholastic picked it up for publication in color, making it a hugely popular read for kids all over the country. Smith said, it took us about five years to color the whole series and all of a sudden I have a new audience of young kids and I'm going to schools giving talks. It's almost like now Bone is never in the past. There's a new generation in the schools that pick up on it all the time and I feel incredibly lucky. It was certainly nothing I could have planned for. It, again, it's it's this yeah, it's this cycle where uh, Bone is you know this this uh, this awkward kind of underappreciated thing. Uh, people that care about the art of comics start uh, boosting it. It becomes this like little secret. Uh, people like Neil Gaiman and Will Eisner and Chuck Dixon, all these greats are like pushing it. It gets tons of press in Wizard Magazine and the Comics Journal, and it just kind of. It just kind of becomes this, you know, everybody loves a quality thing that is under the radar that you can recommend to a friend. It's the best feeling in the world where you're like, totally. oh, oh, I get to be the one who introduces this to you. And it becomes this like little handshake, this wonderful little best kept secret in comics for decades. Um, it's uh, at one point it gets colorized and published in, Dis- in uh, Disney Adventures in the comic section. Yeah, I yeah. remember it as a kid. But that was in the 90s. Yeah, but also, and I talked about this before we started recording, but I want to mention it in the episode. We also forget that comics were handled completely different when we were kids. It was all based on a single issue sales model where um, you know the issues would come out every month and then they would become back issues. And then that's where you could mark them up and sell them for higher costs and make them into collector's items. So actually, Jeff Smith, along with Neil Gaiman and some others, um, the author of Mouse all had to get together and make this huge push on the retailers to say, no, please let us have a graphic novel section in your store. Please let us sell these as full works and not just as single issues because that's where comics are heading. Because there, it was kind of amazing to see a graphic novel section exist, start to exist in a Barnes and Noble and to see works like Sandman and Bone and things like that happen in a big corporate, like, you know, big, uh, well-to-do chain bookstore, you know, because it really was pretty unheard of before that changeover, like in the two thousands. And so, you know, bone 
is always in that section. In every one of those stores, I feel like it is a mainstay. Like, you can't have a graphic novel section without Bone, along with, like, Watchmen and mm. Dark Knight. You know what I mean? They're, they're, it's always there. And that's why I wanted to read it. It was always there and uh, something that I always looked at and was like, I'm definitely going to grab that at some point. I just don't know when, you know? And so it's really incredible how many times this book has been put out in a new way for a new audience. So, wh- oh, mm-hmm. uh, one thing I want to touch on because this is uh ironically enough once scholastic started publishing the colorized editions uh the the lovable comic strip the wholesome uh book that was stand out from the crowd with the rest of the dark and gritty uh indie comics all of a sudden became controversial yeah and bone has been challenged over and over again in various library and school systems uh, some of the incidents involve a uh, 2010 petition in Minnesota for the series to be removed from school libraries. According to the report, uh, her son had just done the complainant, the petitioner. Uh, her son graduated a local D.A.R.E. anti-drug program. And when she discovered the uh, book, she believed that it was promoting drinking and smoking because the characters were in a tavern. And Smiley Bone was chomping a cigar. (laughs) After a letter from Jeff Smith uh, decrying the ban attempt was read aloud at the review committee's hearing, the challenge was rejected. In 2011, New Mexico school districts said that another complaint had been lobbied against Book 4, The Dragon Slayer, and uh, that they requested the entire series to be removed from all classrooms and libraries in the district. Uh, In 2012, a Texas elementary school junior high school filed uh, that the book was unsuited for the age group, and it was challenged twice more in Texas in elementary schools, uh, all with uh, unidentified complainants. Uh, They said that the book was politically, racially, and socially offensive. Fucking bone. (laughs) Bone as socially offensive. Uh, Both school districts reviewed, uh, reviewed the books and opted to keep them. The book made frequent appearances as the most frequent as the most challenged books in the 2010s. And luckily, the comic book legal defense fund was there to assist with challenges to these rulings. But yeah, bone fucking phone bone, smiley bone, phony bone were uh, too hot for school districts in a couple of places. So ridiculous. I uh, So I want to talk, we've talked about more of the business side, the publishing side. I want to talk a bit about more what Bone is really about and um, a little bit more on Jeff's process before we uh, get to the end of our episode. Uh, so right around the sixth issue of Bone, Jeff Smith ends up picking up a book, a really important book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And this solidifies what he's trying to do with his own work. He just realized, oh, I find all the parallels and it helps guide him to complete the story. The book talks about how the same stories are told again and again in every culture. Stop me if you've heard this one. Uh, In Time Memorial, they often are the hero's journey, the call to adventure, crossing a threshold into a new place, past a guardian, a guide, etc. Smith said, it is a fantasy and and the figures in it represent triumphs of psyche. They're not supposed to be realistic triumphs, an example of which would be your baby taking its first step. That is a gigantic realistic triumph. What I'm talking about are, I don't want to try to sound heavier than it is, but quite simply put, it's about simple things like the annihilation of the ego and giving over to a larger unknown whole and the returning back again. 
which is what every single decision and risk that we take every day in our lives is all about. It's taking a risk or letting yourself go and the triumph you get once you reach your goal and come back with it, with your foot in both sides of reality. And while Jeff Smith has a solid idea of the major plot points and even drew, as I said, the final page of the whole thing before actually starting on the first issue, a lot of the characters and moments in between evolve very naturally for him. And I think I like this creative approach, this balance between having bullet points and having some order, but allowing for room for growth and allowing to surprise yourself, be surprised by your own characters and your own moments. A great example of this, the cow race, uh, is something that was mentioned offhand, but he gets several letters from fans mentioning how excited they are to see the cow race. And as he's trying to figure that out, he's trying to work in the, all these different plot points and bring things together and realizes, oh, all of these loose pro- plot threads will actually be solved by introducing the race into the work. It was all just kind of like, you know, side content, essentially, that, that brought all this stuff together. Also, while our three bones start off as very basic character tropes, they too were allowed to be further developed as Smith continued with the book. Smith said, Smiley Bone has been a complete shock to me as a character. I thought Smiley Bone was dumb. Uh, Basically, he was kind of good, the bum with the heart of gold, and he's always been that way. Then all of a sudden, this character turned out to be an incredibly amoral, indecipherable character. I do not know who this character is or what he's capable of. I thought he was basically good, but he'll do anything. He'll go right along with his cousin Phony's plans, no matter how rotten or immoral it is. I didn't think he would do that. Uh, I've been absolutely amazed by this character. He's also turning out to make me laugh personally when I'm writing, which is very rare, but he cracks me up. And for the rat creatures, having them be this big evil force that, when isolated, are actually kind of goofy and lovable, was purposely done as a comment on secret societies or any opposing evil force in our real world. Smith said, each character or of a faceless mob is an individual. Take some group that really grates on you and go talk to those people. Individually, they are sappy. The way they think is fodder for comedy. I mean, it's not funny, but it is. They are an oppressive group where the strongest bonds are not their similar interests, but their shared fears and insecurities. And that's why when you get the rat, the, the evil rat monsters on their own, you have these cute, funny moments yeah. that, you know, and they become these like, real you know things with personalities nah, and, man and the quirks. rat creatures have beef man they they got screwed over they they uh you know they got they got uh, actual grievances mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah god if, if we start breaking down how amazing the actual craft of what is done in bone is we might be here for another hour uh one of the things that i noticed is that the way jeff smith renders and paces action in the book is impeccably done. Very good. To the point where if he didn't have that weird kind of couple of years in the uh, animation wilderness, the final product probably wouldn't be as well done. Uh, Every action has set up and follow through. You can feel the weight of the characters in flight and in motion as they're doing things. Uh, And you get individual actions get the space and panels they need to like have their full impact felt. Another thing that the book does is there is no captions. There's no like, meanwhile, there is no like later on in the rat cave. Like everything that we see is presented as an impartial viewer. We don't even get thought balloons in these characters. Like everything that our characters know and hear is the same as a reader. And we're learning alongside them and we're questioning people's motives and the same way that they are. Yeah, I mentioned uh, Dark Knight earlier, and I, I just to also go back to that since you're talking about it. That was a huge influence on his 
pacing, action approach in comic books. That was definitely what, where that came in. Another thing he loved about Dark Knight, which I never really thought about, Dark Knight never has that like exposition panel. Mm-hmm. It never has like, meanwhile, over it, blah, 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 and like all that stuff that makes him feel comic booky. Therefore, it felt like a movie to him when he read mm-hmm. Dark Knight, and he wanted to instill that into Bone. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, which is why the Netflix cartoon which uh, was heavily delayed because of COVID. I think it's like now finally getting under production at this late stage. Uh, You know, it's all there on the page. Like there's very little room for interpretation or even uh, uh, artistic uh, uh, interference. Like, it's just there on the page every single second of this story. Totally, totally. And a lot of it's because, too, he works off of images uh, and then goes backwards. I have a little bit on his process here, just a couple of nice quotes. Jeff Smith said, I really just try to give myself a beginning, middle, and an end of the story or comic book. That's just down as a few little sentences so I can get a handle on what they're doing. But then once I really start writing, it's pictures and words together simultaneously. I make roughs for a few pages with little rectangles, but then I start going as fast as I can, scribbling in their faces and their words as close to simultaneously as I can. That way, whatever image po- comes into my mind for the oppose, uh, for the position of the character and the expression on their face helps the words come out. It feels active to me. It feels like it's moving and alive. And a lot of times, he just works backwards from a single image. With certain images, he said, I work backwards and figure out, how do I get to draw that really ridiculous but funny visual that I really want to have? A couple of Examples of that are that a very early on iconic moment when winter is apparently supposed <laughs> to be coming, and it is this sudden moment where a just giant thick blanket of snow just plops down onto the ground and therefore creates winter. So that image of the giant blanket of snow, I look it up if you've never seen it before because it is so awesome and so cartoony and great and uh, cool looking. Um, that that was him starting with that image and then creating that into the work. Another one is um, the the trap that the villagers set for the dragon being this giant, huge piece of rope that's like bigger than the humans themselves. And it's attached to this tiny little twig of a tree. And it just looks so ridiculous and makes no sense. And he started with the image and then, you know, created it into the plot line, uh, placed it into the plot line that way. Smith intentionally opened the whole thing in a purely humorous way, and then he slowly brought in darker elements as well as incredibly genuinely sweet moments. Smith said, I don't feel like they get maudlin or sugar-coated and trippy. Every time a little tender moment comes up, I like to get in and get out. I attempt to go up to that moment, and I try to get out of it quick with a joke or a moment. Then when I do the moments of real terror, I try to throw a joke in, too, because I don't want to manipulate the terror too hard either. So uh, that is, I think, really apparent in his work, but I think really an important element of it. I think he's a master of using humor and weaving it into these other things, um, these other elements of heartfeltness, of scary, you know, scary over the top when the dark fantasy world really comes in hardcore and just creates this really nice balance, I feel like, tonally. Um, and this is why probably it works so well for not just adults, but also for children. Uh, you know, it, it never gets too far in one direction. You feel safe reading Bone. By, I mean, it starts in Duckburg and it ends in Westeros. Yeah, and yeah. it happens so gradually and so perfectly that like you don't even feel whiplash. It's 
So insane. Once they start introducing the magic system in this world, the dreaming and all the consequences and the interconnectedness of everything, it's just in a million years, if you I, I would never have read this as a pure fantasy comic book. It's yeah, it's the magic balance that he managed to create Love it. between all of these disparate art forms and storytelling, you know. He, it's the hero's journey with Thorn. It's uh, classic cartooning with the bones. It's indie comics like grittiness with the battle scenes. It's all yeah. there, all balanced. And then heartfelt moments of genuine, you know, just really beautiful. One one that was highlighted in one of the interviews I read was there's a Christmas special, and um, they give the these couple of rat creatures a little a little gift, like a little tr- sweet treat, a savory treat. Holden, it's a, a savory very, treat, a very yeah. savory treat. And it's just this cute little moment of of genuine, like you know, of genuine love and and heartfeltness in this like good versus evil battle. And it's those little moments that creep in that that I don't know. It just grounds it in this really beautiful way, or just get it just makes it feel like more than whatever it seems like on the outset. I think it's constantly doing that. It's constantly presenting you with one thing. Just like you talked about how those three characters are just your basic tropes. You're like your your grumpy kind of bad guy trope, the 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 Donald Duck or whatever, the the you know, the everyman uh with a heart of gold who loves, you know, loves and unrequitedly and uh and you're just dumb dumb guy, right? Mm-hmm. And then you just watch these characters through the course of this epic hundreds of pages become like really you know, complex and interesting in these in these ways that I think is just so cool how he how he's able to balance all of that and juggle all of that and keep it all together and still it not be this thing that just kind of goes off way too far out into, you know, out of control and, and instead is this really complete work, this one big tome. Now, you mentioned the Netflix show. Um, you might be wondering why we've never had uh, any kind of bone on in film or TV form up until now. It's because it's been in production limbo. Nickelodeon movies tried their hand at a film, uh, but Jeff Smith was quite unhappy with their insistence that child actors voice the bones. And they really wanted uh, modern pop songs, Jake. They really wanted to get in sync in there and a bunch of, you know, just make it like, they wanted trolls. They wanted trolls uh, back then and uh, call it God, imagine, imagine... The final scene in Bone with the uh, just the the Earth itself being shattered as a ancient creature is brought down from the sky, and all of a sudden the bones are like, "We did it, everybody! <laughs> Rock your <laughs> totally body, right?" I was gonna go with baby bye bye bye. Yeah, 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 definitely. Thorn That's starts better, twerking. Grandma Ben's like <laughs> doing the monkey. It's it awful. kill me now. Yeah. Then Warner Brothers Pictures ends up buying up the rights in 2008, and again Smith is struggling with the production company because they really want to shove this giant tome into a hour and a half long film and he's like this is not gonna work guys and it ends up being in production limbo he talks about how thrilled he was when the rights ran out over at warner brothers and thought that he was never going to uh release it again to another company but he said very quickly the phone was ringing as soon as they everyone found out that the rights were up for grabs and um very quickly netflix got into his good graces and he said that they were like the only company that seemed to quote get it 
And uh, so he's really excited uh, for what's to come. And it will be uh, a hopefully an animated TV series on Netflix. This was part of Netflix's. I mean, I am excited, but I'm also scared because this was part of Netflix's gigantic. Uh huh. Uh, IP buyout when they were threatened by Disney Plus. Did somebody say gigantic IP buyout? There's also a Telltale game. <laughs> it really does mirror that a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, the Telltale game, it's oh, it's imp- it's not available on any digital storefront. Uh, you can't pirate it because the CD release has insane DRM on it and nobody's bothered to make a crack of it yet. Um, the uh, It was a very early title. Uh, if I remember correctly, in the Telltale chronology, the graphics are very crude. The setups are very, uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, it, I, I wouldn't recommend it. You can like watch gameplay videos on YouTube, but it really is just note for note the events of the comic. But instead of reading it passively, you have to actively choose the dialogue trees and walk to all the places in between the panels. You know, it's just not Telltale's best, but. Uh, if you if you're down with it and uh, really want to track down a CD, also if your computer still has a CD tray, go nuts, my dude. There you go. Uh, a little bit more on Jeff Smith, very briefly. After Bone Smith put out a sci-fi series about a dimension jumping art thief titled R A S L. Razzle. If you want to check out a Razzle, if you want to check out a little bit more of his work, he also did a web comic about the first human to leave Africa titled Tuki Save the Humans and this was uh, released in print form in 2014 but it's kind of weird because he ended up t- going on hiatus in 2016 with the work because he wanted to completely redo it and he rediscovered what it was truly about. He, he was like, oh, this is more about family and I don't know. So it's kind of in a limbo but still, if you want to check it out, it's more Jeff Smith uh, and yeah, the guy is brilliant and I love his work, Bone, and I cannot recommend it enough. I hope that this episode sold it on uh to you if you uh had never heard of it before or were considering getting it i hope we did a good job of convincing you because it's phenomenal it's absolutely even if you read it in the past it is a hundred percent worth it revisiting take it back up especially if you're having a weird unemployment year it's mm. great you'll get lost in this sprawling fantasy epic and not look for a job or write that screenplay that you should have written holden why didn't you write the screenplay holden nope just gonna rebone chain smoke cigarettes okay all right well i think that's it that's our episode on bone thank you so much for joining us if you'd like to support us further hey check out our patreon patreon.com forward slash whizbrew every single week we have bonus content um and uh that involves our wizard and the newser we talk about what's going on in the news and what we've been playing and watching and whatnot recently we also have the year that was we've been working through the 80s that series is about to be complete because I don't know if we're going to do the 70s. Uh, we're not. We're not. Oh, we could do the we should do the 2010s, though. Oh, God. That'll be weird. We'll do the 2010s. Yeah, yeah. That'll be super weird. Do we do that? Yeah, because we, we did, we the, did 2000s, the 2000s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll do the 2010s. That'll be super weird. All right, cool. Well, uh, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. And uh, check me out, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I do Wednesday, Tuesday, Friday streams. And you can check it out there. Uh, we have a great time. And I also believe a purple puppet <sighs> streams as well. What's his fucking name? Jake? I've been doing a VTuber project, and it is called Puppet Jared. Go to YouTube.com slash Puppet Jared. I stream uh, a couple of times a week, but the, the real party 
is on Thursdays for a little segment I call the Cartoon Dumpster. It is a watch party style thing, half MST3K, half Saturday morning cartoons, where I track down the weirdest, most uh, bafflingly terrible, yet compellingly uh, well-constructed cartoons of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, especially the ones that have been neglected by the copyright ID system online. Uh, It's been a ton of fun. A lot of fun people come to hang out. Uh, Jokes are made. Sites are beheld. Thursday nights at youtube.com slash Puppet Jared. I recommend it. I think if you like this show, you'll probably enjoy what's going down there. You will love it, Jake. I can assure our audience that. And hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.